and welcome to Chatty AF, the Anime Feminist Podcast. My name is Vry, I'm an editor and contributor at Anime Feminist. You can find me on Twitter at WriterVry, and if you check my pinned thread, you can find all the places I freelance, or you can find the other podcast I'm on at TrashPod. And this week we are talking about BL with two scholars on the subject, Kirsten and Sarah, if you guys would like to introduce yourselves. All right, thank you. Um, I think calling me a scholar is possibly a little bit of an overstatement. Um, but I'm very excited to be here and to uh, be talking about BL from possibly a more academic perspective. Um, so my name is Sarah. Um, I have been reading BL for a long time, um, and I'm very like interested in um, the history of the genre and the sort of um, politics of it. Um, I did write a research paper on it in undergrad. Um, and I, uh, try to read scholarship when I can, um, because I think it's very fascinating. Uh, I run the blog Feminist Fujoshi on Tumblr and WordPress, um, and you can find me on Twitter at BlueSocket. Hi, um, so I'm Kirsten Santos, um, I'm an assistant professor at some university here in the Philippines, and um, the reason why I didn't disclose it is because um, my opinions here do not totally represent my institution and in that I am presenting myself um, based on my academic work. Um, and my academic work is centered on um, female fan culture. And um, I'm currently working on a monograph that um, was basically my thesis or my dissertation during my um, PhD, where um, I examine the history of the production of knowledge among, or at least um, intertextual knowledge, or I would call the Fujoshi database, you know, the history of the construction of the Fujoshi database um, in Japan. So um, yeah, um, how I got there? Um, I got there because, oh my god, 10 years ago, <laughs> I wrote this blog entry on trying to understand the relationship between Shonen Jump and Fujoshi and why Fujoshi are avid consumers of Shonen Jump when it's not a media that's directed to them. And that kind of, you know, uh, continued for like a couple of years, a uh, couple of months, and then I made this really funny joke, like, maybe I'll make a dissertation of it. Well, guess what? I did. Um, so that's how it always starts. But yeah, so um, my website is Otaku Champlu. You can actually see the bare bones of my um, dissertation there. I really haven't posted any updates on it, primarily because I am developing the book right now. So um, because of those conditions, I have to be more careful about um, what's being Put out online but i do talk about it on my twitter um and you can follow me there as kirsten i'm not a hard person to find um and um yeah so there cool will people be able to buy that book or is it going to be one of those circulated in academic press um we'll see gotcha <laughs> as i said i'm still i'm still developing it um and um, I'm kind of working on it, and I'm, I'm hoping I can work with a publisher that would um, release it in a more um, accessible manner, because I'd like people to read it. Yeah, for sure. Well, 
I am so glad to have you guys here today. Uh, the world of BL is vast, and there are a lot of avenues to uh, approach it from. But I thought that since you guys have done academic study of it, a good place to start, at least for this particular podcast, would be with kind of a history lesson on the roots of the genre and some of the classics and how it began to evolve into what we now think of as the modern BL genre. Which, uh, so, to because in English, anyway, we've only had a couple of those classic volumes put out uh and very recently so yeah mm. oh but toman um isn't po no ichizoku um po the po the po clan or the po family i don't know how they're translating it it's coming out oh, soon right you know i haven't heard i hope so um i'm a big yeah because i remember i don't know if racial thorn is working on it but yeah. she has definitely been a a, a huge help in you know bringing a lot of Motohagio stuff's over, so I'm hoping. But, uh, but yeah, I think, I think a good place to start is you know Ikeda and Hagio and you know poem of wind and trees, or as they were kind of colloquially known as a group, the uh, magnificent Forty ers All right, uh, I guess to start with, do you have a, um, among the the three main ones that we talk about when we talk about BLIS, do you have a preference? Like, have you read their works? And is there one that you're drawn to more? Hmm. Let's see. I I actually have not read um, The Heart of Tomas, um, The Rose of Versailles, or um, The Song of the Wind and the Trees. Um, I've read other works by Motohagio, which I'm really enjoying. Um, I'm like halfway through Otherworld Barbara. Um, yeah, so definitely super cool. I own the Rose of Versailles anime. <laughs> I just haven't seen it yet. Which just went out of print recently. Very <laughs> yeah, suddenly. that's that's why I picked it up. Um, so I mean, like, I definitely like know about their work and like I've been exposed to it, um, but I have not actually read the three big classics um, that most frequently get talked about. I, on the I... other hand, have read all. <laughs> well, not all of their works. Um, and not all of their works. Um, I, but I did read the classics, and um, that was part of my um, dissertation, or perhaps a part of my long life as a as a BL reader and consumer and my own particular thirst for it. Um, the first one I read, or my first encounter with them is actually Kazito Kinuta, um, The Song of the Wind and Trees um, by Takamiya Keiko. And I really didn't understand how revolutionary that was until I, I started doing my dissertation, but I read it when I was 16. Um, I was in a friend's house. This friend um, has traveled to Japan and basically brought home like small um, bung, um, wide band um, versions of Kazi and really small. I just remember how small they were, and um, I knew I knew little Japanese, um, but I can read I can read enough to read the kana and the hiragana, but never really understand what they mean. So I knew the names. I know Gilbert, etc. And what's fascinating about that story and why it struck me was that you can you can get um, 
the heart of the discourse the, the i mean the heart of the story how you know the what emotions she was going through or what emotions she wanted to convey throughout the story even with my little knowledge of japanese back then and i was like screaming ogu why is he pining for ogu and you know why is jilberry you know so obsessed with him there's surge there you know and um you know, Serge is the better man, blah, blah, blah. But um, later on, reading through the series, I, I just realized how pro- problematic um, uh, Gilbert's mental situation was at that point, that there was this bond that he couldn't really break from. And that, for me, was, like, intense. It was like, uh, it was a sleepover party for the weekend. I was only supposed to stay for two ni- one night. But I ended up staying for two nights because I had to finish it. You know, it was one yeah, of like those seventeen volumes, isn't it? It's long. Um, well, it was the wide band, so it was probably around eight volumes or so. Um, I can't remember, but uh, but you know, I was like really going through it. I'd ask my friend, "What's happening here? What's happening here?" You know, and and um, later on, I was girl sobbing, and then that was like my first encounter with the 49ers. and um, afterwards, but. Interestingly, of the lot, um, my favorite work of the 49ers was actually um, Moto Hagyo's um, They Were 11. Oh. That, that, was, that was for me like, wow, that was an interesting, because uh, I like suspense, I like the idea of thriller, and to see that within the context of shoujo was very interesting for me. And then I realized later that no, it was actually published in a shonen comic. I'm like, uh. <laughs> I'm like, mm, why did you rob the girls of this awesome thing? You know, um, <laughs> no, but it's okay. it's okay because it's still Motohage. She represents for us, no? And um, sure, she's got a lot of crossover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and later on, um, I actually read Rose of Versailles much later in my life as a fan. And well, I I saw the anime first. Um, and then read the manga and, and, and that too would have like a great impact to me and how narrative and how emotive narratives are and I can see the cultural um, impact that it would have you know, in terms of like the drama, the grandeur and how it builds this imagination of France, you know, um, and splen- the splendor that is shoujo, you know, and it's there. And um, yeah, so actually what's interesting is that you know the 49ers were actually much broader than just three these three women but um they're the ones that are most renowned and there's many of them and they've done contributions quite differently um and um well I, since this discussion is about bl maybe we can just really focus on takimiya and um takimiya and motohagyo because i remember that um they used to be, uh, they used to be roommates, um, and that they live in an apartment called the Oizumi Salon, mm-hmm. and uh, well, they called it the Oizumi Salon because Tezuka had his, um, uh, what's the name of, uh, I forget the name, but he had his own atelier. You know, he had like, um, Tezuka was known to have um, mm-hmm. this really interesting atelier with a bunch of other artists like Shotaro Ishinomori used to work there or used to work and live there and um, the Fujio the Fujio boys who's behind Doraemon also used to live there 
and they all worked. It, it became like this creative hub for manga artists who want mm-hmm. to absorb from Tezuka. You know, his his although Tezuka started not living there, and it just became really a hub, you know, for the likes of um, Ishinomori Shotaro and others. Mm-hmm. Right, because there was actually another very prominent at the time shonen artist who uh, Takemiya in particular took a lot of inspiration from. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Ishinomori Shotaro was uh, one of those artists, and she would um, Ishinomori Shotaro and Chiba Tetsuya were those two artists, and she would speak fondly of them and how um, for Takemiya Keiko, uh, the thing, the fascinating thing here is that Ishinomori Shotaro. Um, and Chiba Tetsuya started their careers in shoujo manga. Um, although Ishinomori Shotaro had this debut in shonen, but afterwards he couldn't find like a space for him. And at that time, mm. there were so many um, male comic artists drawing for shonen. So after his um, debut work, Nikyu Tenshi, and Nikyu Tenshi, according to um, Fujimoto Yukari, you know, is also a scholar. Um, on shoujo and manga. Fujimoto Yukari said that of, of the lot, it was Nikyu Tenshi that introduced the sparkly-eyed character, you know, um, the second-class an- mm. angel. Now, the, the main character had sparkly eyes, and the reason why this main character had sparkly eyes is because this angel can use it to read people's emotions. And later on, that became like a staple of... Um, it's something that Shotaro Ishinomori would use in his um, uh, shoujo work. And he would use it for protagonists. He would use it for heroines. Um, in fact, one of the cutest ones that I found was him using it for Sherlock. Um, he did a... Yeah, he had... A, um, Ishinomori Shotaro had like a comic on... Um, what's the name? The Scarlet something? Scarlet Pimpernel? Yes. So he did a comic on Scarlet Pimpernel, and uh, um, he, uh, the main character Sherlock, would have those wide eyes, and the woman—I forgot the name of the woman—would also have those large wide eyes. And so he would use that so that they'll have more opportunities to express their emotion. He can convey sadness, convey joy, etc. It will be clearer through the eyes and. Over time, that those starry eyes would evolve. Chiba Tetsuya would also use it um, in his comics, um, in his shoujo comics. And then um, the transition of those sparkly eyes and how that kind of, for me, transformed the per- perception of the, ma- of the male. Because it's usually mm-hmm. used within women. And then um, uh, in shoujo, it's the female protagonists would have those sparkly eyes and then some men won't but i analyze if you know there was a crossover and she but uh tetsuya did it for joe of ashton joe so mm-hmm. um he became like this f- cultural phenomenon and he had the starry glassy eyes um and when shotaro ishinomori transitioned to shonen with cyborg 009 he also used the same um Starry eyes, you know, under the guise of X-ray vision with um, hmm. Joe as well. Why are they all named Joe? What's up? With Joe? <laughs> it's an American it's punchy. thing. It's an American <laughs> thing. They had like a big right. American "Hey Joe" kind of post-war thing, I guess, going on. Mm. Mm. So there, and she, she and she admired them greatly, and she would always say that their works have always been inspirational to them. And uh, for Ishinomori, it's his ability to produce. Um, 
new narratives for shoujo meaning he tra- he tackled horror he tackled thriller he tackled sci-fi in shoujo so that made that diversified the genre so to speak for takimiya and friends when they were growing up they basically like laying yeah. the foundation for their later work yeah so that's absolutely fascinating um i didn't know a lot of that which is really exciting um, although I know we talked about um, Ichinomori Shotoro before, Takamiya Keiko and um, Motohagio were both roommates, correct? Mm. Yes, yes, yes. And so, like, they both sort of um, had like a close relationship, and then started developing toward this, um, these like uh, explorations of like homoerotic themes in their work, um, like sort yeah. of concurrently, but also on different timelines. Hagio publishes in the Sunroom, which is the first the the first uh, same sex kiss in manga, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is why people call her the mother of BL. Yeah, <laughs> hmm. yeah. Which is which, which is hilarious because she didn't she didn't really get into this first. It was yeah, actually yeah. It was it was Takamiya Keiko. Um, yeah, and I think a friend of hers showed her a copy of Barajoku, um, a gay yeah, yeah. magazine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's um Takimiya Keiko got into it um not just through Barazoku. Um so in this place called Oizumi Salon, they have uh, a landlady um of sorts. Something like a building manager. I, I really I really don't know where to um put her. Uh oh here I am again, forgetting forgetting her name but this particular um and, and she's very pivotal i will remember her eventually um <laughs> i i bet matt thorne could even just like give a tweet kirsten it's this <laughs> rachel <laughs> or, or sorry rachel um i stand corrected mm-hmm. um rachel would probably uh correct me and um but they did have somebody in um in uh, in, in, in near Oizumi Salon, and this person was particularly fascinated with um, Bildungsroman stories, and these are stories by Herman Hesse, and they're often involved uh, um, boys in uh, boys in dormitories in Germany, and so on and so mm-hmm. forth. And um, and 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 this this particular person whose name I will find eventually, um, as I as I open my files, um, <laughs> this person actually was very influential to Takimiya and um, Moto, and Moto would talk about it in um, her interview with Rachel in uh, TCJ, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, and she would talk about um, how. TCJ uh, in that TCJ interview where uh, she watched this um, particular French film with Takimiya and this friend um, called La Pat- um, something like Our Intimate Friendship or La Particular whatever yeah would you know that Sarah I'm sorry it's it's um, escaping me right now it was a it was a French film it was about um, sort of like a I don't think it was explicitly involved in a romantic relationship, but it, depla- it, de- it um, depicted a lot of intimacy. And um, Motohagio was really struck by that um, and became really fascinated with this film. And then uh, that like right, sort of was, drove uh, her toward writing yeah. writing BL. It was uh, Las Amitiés uh, Particulares. It was a 64 film. Yeah. Yes! Well done! <laughs> and then there's only, not only that. 
Yeah, thank you, Google. There's this another one um, called Death in Venice. This is much later. Ah, uh, yes, Death in Venice. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's like classic Bishonen territory. And, um, and it's quite fascinating because once they started on these buildings, and this is why um, most of their stories are set in some kind of German school and institution or whatever it's because that's what they consumed back then and they were kind of it, it, it was let's not lie it's a glorified fanfic of some of these buildings roman that they um or fan comic if that's a thing um i i know sure. one of the one of my colleagues um james welker which i i think you guys should also follow um on twitter he he's he's done research on this and he's seen um he's seen Takimiya Keiko uh, Dojinshis, you know, and, and even um, in shoujo manga, in shoujo manga, you have Takimiya Keiko talking about um, her travels to Europe because you know that's where you get all your stuff. And that, what's fascinating is rather than really talking about the society and culture at the time, those travel travel um, entries would have like, look at the cobblestones, look at, she's so driven to the aesthetic of it. And it shows in their work. Because uh, in the really excellent uh, Heart of Thomas American release, which I recommend picking up for multiple reasons, uh, Rachel Thorne has this wonderful essay in the back talking with some excerpts from Motohagio talking about how part of the appeal of a relationship between two boys is girls can, you know, read it with a degree of remove in these very intense scenarios. And I wonder if setting it in Europe instead of Japan also feeds into that. Um, well, Takumiya Keiko has said um, that to a certain extent, she was really using, she was really creating the distance. Um, she was using that distance to really explore something that was more intimate and personal to her. And and that at least gave her a healthy space, you know, to really mm -hmm. assess and um, digest the emotions that many of these characters go through. And 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 really, the heart of that time of of um, Boys Love at the time, which was called Shonen Ai, um, it wasn't called Boys Love. I mean, it translates to Boys Love, but it wasn't called Boys Love. It was called um, Shonen Ai. Um, that they they needed something different to really cover and um, to really cover and uh, extract as much insight and emotions into humanity. And unfortunately, at the time, this was not seen through women's bodies. And, 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 and that's because, you know, women's bodies have always been controlled to a certain extent. And um, there are expectations, social expectations, perhaps outside of Takemiya, perhaps within the editorial reach, uh, or maybe even their editorial understanding of the market. You know, the market understands that women should work and function this way, and that frustrated Takemiya and friends. Um, mm. No, not there. Anyway, um, and basically, this woman's quite pivotal because um, she was the one who basically lit a fire in Takemiya and friends. She was the one who said, why can Shotaro Ishinomori do this, but we can't? What is something, because the thing here is that when Shotaro Ishinomori, Shotaro Ishinomori moved to Sonen Manga, they also followed because they loved his works in Shoujo Manga. And so when he became professional, 
um, it, when Sardis his um, shown in professional career, they followed him and they were like, why is this happening? And why can't he write this in shonen manga as well? And at that time, that was like the peak of shonen manga in the 1960s. And um, and at the end of the day, um, this girl was like saying, let's let's do something like this. Let's make interesting narratives that will transform this genre. And um, this woman, whose name will appear now as I scroll up into my notes, Masayama knew it. <laughs> Sorry, I don't have access to my books. If I saw my book, I'd be like, eh. um, so Norie Masayama, she's the, she's, she's, I would say she could have been the manager <laughs> of these shonen eye artists. She was the, um, the big fan of Bildungsroman and was basically saying, why don't we explore this? Why don't we do something phenomenal? And that's what they did. And, um, um, what's fascinating is that um, afterwards they did no, actually November uh, gymnasium was the first one and then and the person who's really uh, uh, yeah so November gymnasium is the first one and then Toma no Jinso and then Kazetokuni Uta in 1976 and then I think um, uh, they had like a number of shorts in between um, like short stories and so on but that basically opened the world of shonen eye or boys love. And despite Takebiya and uh, Hagio being friends and roommates starting out, they eventually developed a bit of a rivalry because Hagio was a little bit mm, more popular. I, I don't know how they felt about each other. I know um, the um, despite like these works of um, like Song of the Wind and the Trees, um, Especially being like, like cultural landmarks that we look back and um, see a lot of influence, uh, mm -hmm. and also like um, I know um, I think it was James Welker, um, <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. has commented on how like um, like Takamiya got tons and tons and tons of fan letters. Like it, even oh, though yeah. it wasn't necessarily commercially successful, it really. Um, like sparked well, interest well. yeah i think in terms of commercial success um the two titles were popular but they were not commercially big um there's this um i studied this mag a fan magazine named puffu um and this fan magazine in particular are like um it was created by um it was created by oh well no not created um it was inspired by uh, the people who created Comic Kit, um, and uh, basically, those men—they um, were pivotal in building discourse um, surrounding shoujo manga and shonen manga. And, um, for example, um, Yonezawa, Yonezawa, um, who is who is basically the creator of um, of Comic Kit. Uh, he, 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 and other friends were pivotal in creating discourse surrounding shoujo manga. What makes shoujo manga? What is fascinating about it? And they looked towards um, Takimiya and Hagio as um, pivotal um, artists, you know, who were developing new genres, especially with uh, new approaches, you know, in shoujo storytelling and even shonen storytelling. Things like terae, 
um, or to Terra and uh, what you call this, uh, they were 11, which is my, my personal favorite from the lot. And, um, and so there, the, there was the reason why we remembered them is because these guys have placed them in the discourse. But within common Japanese discourse, and this is by, by virtue of experience, um, unless you're a shoujo fan or unless you're a fujoshi or an otaku, you probably wouldn't have heard of Takemiya Keiko and Motohagyo. You will, however, have heard of Ikeda Ryoko, who mm-hmm. is basically a national institution thanks to Rose of Versailles. You know? <laughs> and, and it's quite interesting because in terms of rivalries, um, Moto, Moto would become more popular because he would be more loved by the critics. And, um, and and the critics would have some kind of influence, and I'm not gonna mm-hmm. lie, her works are really good, you know. And and um, and I'm not saying that Takemiya Keiko's works are not good; they're also just as great. Um, and it's quite unfortunate that um, people have just associated her with Kazetsu Kinuta because that was her strongest and longest work, and. Um, and, but she's done quite a lot of works in between that were also as poignant, that were also as revolutionary, were also transformative. Um, like Ter- Terra is, is quite awesome. Um, yeah, I, I was actually curious. It was like English, uh, we've been quite blessed in the uh, English language market recently. We've gotten, you know, uh, Samiketa with Claudine and maybe we're getting Rose of Versailles. Those, that license has been sat on for years now. Uh, we've, we've got quite a bit of Hagio. We've, uh, we got some of Yasuko Aoike's From Eroica with Love, which I adore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we, we haven't really gotten any Takemiya, and I keep wondering why that is. Um, licensing, really, whether she agrees to it or not. Um, mm. uh, so... Um, we were fortunate to get Terrae before, but with Vertical, but I don't know what happened there. Or, oh. I know something happened, but I cannot disclose. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> uh, I think it was, so, it had difficulty, like, reaching a market, right? Yeah. I, I mean, at the end of the day, that's that's what it is. And um, it's really difficult getting, or uh, reaching a market. And there are also different issues, and it also boils down to the author, whether they're happy to have it distributed or not. Clearly, Takimiya Keiko wants to have more. I don't know. I can't read her well in terms of um, why she wouldn't. I think there's a there's this one interesting conference that I was in, and um, basically, uh, I had the fortune of meeting her. And the first thing, because they, because some of the scholars there knew that, like, oh my God, this is Kirsten. She's like a big BL fan. Shut mm-hmm. her up. You know, I just they would just warn me, like, you know, just. Just give her, you know, don't 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 dwell so much on her yoi works, and I'm like, mm. okay. But at the end of the day, when I had to ask her to sign something, what I asked her to sign was like from the first print. I, I managed to get um, the first print of like Kaze uh, to Kinuta, so I got the first oh. volume in the first print. Uh, it was a gift from a friend who's also a scholar, and then I had it signed by Takimiya Keiko, and um, and I just said. 
and I just the only thing I told her is that this book changed my life. This basically made me discover you and the wonderful genre that you've established. Without saying the word BL, <laughs> <laughs> and she was kind of moved by it, and I'm like, yeah, and that was it. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you know, and and I'm like, but apparently, when you read, um, she has she released an autobiography lately called Shonen no Nawa Gilberto, and in Shonen no Nawa Gilberto, you'll really see the, the process, you know, and how, um. At one point in her career, this emotional journey that she went through with Kazuto Kinuuta was an interesting development in her life because that's when she started really questioning who she was as an artist as well. And um, for her, uh, it was really knowing or loving the craft, you know, the craft of creating comics. And that's why she's made her um, mission, you know, to, uh, to, to share her teachings. And she's been... She's been, I mean, when she was a comic artist, she would do like these little um, columns for magazines teaching, you know, readers, how do you draw manga, what are the things you should pay attention to, etc. And um, and this is also, I think, maybe mildly influenced by Shotaro Ishinomori, who also wrote something similar, who's always been in that process of, I'm going to educate the next generation of manga artists. She did the same, and she's gone far ahead. She's even become like a professor for it in um, Kyoto Seika University and so on and so forth. But, um, and I think that's her legacy. But in terms, and it's it's kind of unfair to her. I, I kind of feel that it's unfair to her that she doesn't get enough much credit for her works herself which, because she's done quite a lot. And the one who does do get, who does get credit is Moto Hagyo. And, um, I can sense there's a bit of rivalry there, especially how, you know, in, in, in BL discourse, Motohagyo is seen as the mother of BL when, for me, central to BL is the Bishonen. And the mother of the greatest Bishonen there is is none other than Takemiya Keiko. And when you think of the Bishonen, in, who's a central, you know, kind of like person in, in boys' love and has transformed over the years, there's no greater Bishonen than Gilberto. Most of our listeners, I imagine, won't have access to Kazeki, no matter how often I keep sending requests to Seven Seas. But I will say that um, we do not condone piracy uh, through NFM, but when something is very old and unlikely to get licensed, I-, I will just say that the Kazeki OVA is out there and well worth tracking down. I will just say this. if I know there are tumblers who actually just do illustrations, who share illustrations, and I think that doesn't hurt. The depressing thing is Kazeki was never even completely uh, fan translated because I, I guess it's quite dense. Yeah. Uh, no, no, no. It's 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 a difficult it's a difficult read, and I think whoever is translating it would have to go through some kind of um, emotional. I mean, I read it for two. The first time I read it, I read it for two days, and even then, I was already like sobbing in my friend's um, couch, you know, um, and like, why is it so? You know, uh, I. But I mean, if they want to see the aesthetics of Kazetuki no Uta, it you know they can go to Pinterest, Tumblr, type Takemiya Keiko Kazetuki no Uta. They'll find Gilbert there, um, mm-hmm. and uh, Gilbert is the blonde one. <laughs> Just in yeah. case you wonder, <laughs> Gilbert. When I speak of Gilbert, it's a blonde one. And he, I, Sarah, you were saying that um, Gilbert is such an icon. He even appeared in. Uh, 
Yeah, there, there's a really cute reference, like tiny subplot reference to him in uh, Fumiyoshi Naga's "What Did You Eat Yesterday," which is precious. That was that was something Bri brought up on our last recording. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you mean? This is the first time we've recorded this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry, technical stuff. Technical stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but yeah, it's it's really cute, and and honestly, when you told me um, that that Takemiya is is not as well known among you know outside of like really hardcore shoujo fans it surprised me a little bit because i i assumed that that work was a little bit of a touchstone in the way that you know uh rosa versailles is mm, no no not no. even motohagyo oh yeah and that and that's why it and motohagyo now writes for a much more mature audience so people would know motohagyo because they've read her later works like other world Barbara, now she has this one um, that reflects on the atomic bomb Nanohana, and so she's still you know the thing with Motohagi she's still producing manga vis-a-vis Takemiya Keiko, who I don't think she has published anything beyond her autobiography recently. Hmm. Yeah, like she hasn't published a manga manga. So um, yeah, but 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 here's the interesting thing: they don't remember. And they don't remember Takemiya Keiko, but they actually remember other shoujo artists who are actually their contemporaries. So you have the Magnificent 49 group, which was well-loved um, by many people um, in terms of manga discourse. You know? um, and then, meaning these are the hardcore fans of shoujo manga. Within shoujo manga as well, there's another group, and they're called the Ribbon Group. The Ribbon Group or the Margaret Group. And the Ribbon Group, mostly, these are the people who published in Ribbon. Um, but they're actually quite popular among Japanese. So people know um, another great shoujo artist at the time that was unknown to Western discourse. And actually, I don't think her works are popular or doesn't even have some kind of cultural agency among us. Is that um, Yukari Ichijo, who, hmm. who did Pride, who did... Um, Yukan Club, and um, she's been writing. She's actually a contemporary of um, Takemiya and Friends, and they actually have an interview together in Com, which is the magazine where Takemiya debuted. And this Com is actually the Osamu Tezuka magazine, contemporary of Garo. So there's like this whole um, Gekiga relationship, you know? She also published there. She also did like a little doujinshi there, but they've never. And that's an interesting. Result and she has more cultural latency in Japan. Like people know Yukari Ichijo. She's well loved. Uh, we've mentioned Dojinshi once or twice. I, I actually we're going to I, run up on an hour. I know we are, but before we do, I I wanted uh, Sarah. I know you know some really interesting stuff about kind of how the Dojinshi circles eventually kind of coalesced into Junei and the official what we now think of as BL as a market as opposed to you know, male more uh, under being under the umbrella of shoujo, as it were. Um, and so I guess, how does doujinshi become original BL works? Like, where's that fork at? Sure. Um, so initially, um, I believe doujinshi uh, was created to, like, talk about original works. Um, just, like, works that weren't published with... Um, like with a publisher, they were self-published works. And sort of the first doujinshi we see are actually like original works. Um, But then with like the rise of Kamiket, 
I think it was sort of con- uh, concurrent with that. Um, we see a lot of um, the fan comics, um, and specifically with BL, a lot of um, playing with sort of shonen. <laughs> um, so Captain Tsubasa, um, I think Saint Seiya. Uh, yeah, a lot of the big shonen titles... Um, people got very excited about um, playing with them um, and, like, pairing the two leads. Pairing, like, um, two male leads, for example. um, To make um, erotic, (laughs) like, just very fun, um, sometimes sort of plotless erotic manga. Which is what uh, Yaoi was specifically uh, referring to, was basically PWP, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, um, um, yeah, um, I always want to say it's an acronym, but it's not actually an a- acronym just because of the way the Japanese syllabary works. Um, but it's Yamanashi, Ochinashi, uh, Iminashi. Um, I might be getting that wrong. <laughs> no, 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 you got it right. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, and so people have translated that a few different ways, but a lot of times it comes up as like no, no, um, plot, no climax, no meaning. Um, sort of like the the main draw is um, is the porn is the eroticism, um, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, and that's sort of like a, a self deprecating way um, or like a playful way mm-hmm. for um, a female yeah. fans um, creating these doujinshi to to talk about their work. This is an interesting one. Um, there's this book that came out um, maybe a few years back called Boys Love Manga and Beyond. And um, James Walker um, wrote an interesting piece there about the history of BL and he would talk about how, um, and and this is also emergent in my research when um, a lot of the fans who wrote doujinshi during that time in the 1960s and 1970s were were fans of shoujo. And um, so, and the doujinshi are not necessarily comics. Um, so, for example, Yonezawa's doujinshi were mostly criticisms, and um, and they were criticizing the works of um, Moto and Takemiya and how they're enjoying it, and they made parodies of it. So that, those were like um, the early parody comics. You no, know? they were in in an ef- in an effort to criticize, critique, or satire. The original work in a in a more in an entertaining manner, and Yaoi springs from that as well. Around the same time, you know, I'm not saying that one came after the other, but they were actually, you know, emerging in parallel. You know, in terms of consumption, there was that kind of atmosphere that inspired people to do a lot of different things. And what she mentioned about this dojinshi uh, called Yaoi, or at least one of the one of the terms that they use in that um, was Yaoi, is that. Um, it was there were fans of shoujo manga as well. There were fans of uh, Moto and Takemiya, and they wanted to. Uh, sorry, uh, Hagyo and Takemiya, and they wanted to um, kind of push the boundaries a bit, make a PWP kind of, you know. And the answer was Yoi. And and what's interesting later on is that James would note how um, because of how handsome they were, etc. There was also fascination for. Um, for this beautiful man, so to speak, um, mm. they're going to rock stars like David Bowie. The heart of the genre. Um, yeah, and I, um, so from like the 
fans who were reading and who were inspired by um, Hagio and Takemiya um, uh, in the 60s and 70s um, to sort of where we see comic head emerging in the 80s. Um, that's sort of our timeline, um, the, the bell curve, I guess, for, for Doshinshi. Um, and then you see... Um, Sort of like uh, as the 80s go on, we get works like um, uh, Aino Kusabi. Um, wow, Aino Kusabi is that old. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. No. Um, Aino Kusabi is quite interesting because she actually started her career as a dojinshi artist for uh, Captain Tsubasa. So I actually have a couple of her dojinshi. <laughs> I have a yeah yeah, yeah. And, there's like that yeah. real um that real like movement in between like the amateur and the professional mm. in BL which is really yeah. interesting. And it's it's quite interesting because um I know Banana Fish is quite big this this year um because of its resurgence but if you think about it those were initially published in children magazines during the 1980s they they were not necessarily separated from shoujo manga but yeah so even though we were getting these more erotic works um that were like uh very different from what um hagio and takemiya um and ikeda and the rest of the 49ers were doing in the 60s and 70s um it was still really under that umbrella of shoujo that's why i find it fascinating when um i've had i've had a number of conferences where you have these kids coming up to me and like I don't like shoujo but I like BL and I'm like you cannot <laughs> you cannot the history stems from there my love and so let me talk and um but um it wasn't I uh, sorry I just have to kind of like spring not I know Kusabi um it's Zetsuai the author of Zetsuai um she's the one Minami Ozaki she and it's quite interesting because she if I'm not mistaken she published Zetsuai in the same um, publishing line as because uh, they were working in this magazine called Shokomi and uh, and Shokomi was like this um, interesting um, experimental place for shoujo manga and so from Shokomi actually I think Banana Fish emerged and then um, Minami Ozaki was in Margaret, and Margaret was where another, like, uh, how do I put it? Margaret's where Rose of Versailles, again, another revolutionary one, uh, title, you know, was made, and, um, and so on and so forth. Yeah, and, we um, really have those, um, those legacies of magazines, um, just because uh, of, like, the author, the author's relationship with the, um, the magazine that they debut in and the um, long relationship that they tend to have with that editor. Um, and the readers as well. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get these really interesting, um, even though uh, a lot of the times um, we tend to like uh, overemphasize demographic um, as like a, like a genre determiner, um, there really are these, mm. like, continuities um, mm. within um, different magazines and the, uh, a relationship that authors have with those magazines. So you totally see yeah. that with, like, the, the shoujo magazines that these women were writing in um, as yeah. BL was sort of emerging. 
one of the funniest anecdotes I had from one of um, another researcher, um, Fusami Ogi. Uh, she's done work. Uh, she's done. She's published works mostly in English. Uh, sorry, mostly in Japanese. But she's got a couple of like articles on shoujo manga here and there, in English. Um, and she was saying that um, what's fascinating about the reason why these women were able to publish these kinds of stories in shoujo magazines is just that editors didn't know what women want. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And, and women, and they were women, so they'd assume if this is what you want to read, go ahead, you know. And fortunately for them, it worked. Um, and in fact, it's interesting that with Zetsuai, with the creation of Zetsuai, and to a certain extent, the creation of Banana Fish, I'm not saying that um, Zetsuai is definitely more homoerotic than Banana Fish would ever be. Banana Fish would would still kind of like have those you know ambiguous um boundaries it's writing that line of this is a love story but also we're real deep in the coding pretty hard yeah 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 it's 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 like it's it's however you want to read it it's there's it's more open to interpretation than let's say zetsuai that really establishes oh no hell no we're we're going to the shower together and you know what's going to happen you know, right. Whereas uh, banana fish is like, right. well, they loved each other like lovers, but they didn't bone. So, you know, or, or like, yeah. and it's hard to define lover. I may have, you know, I kiss this particular character, but do I want to bang him? It was a strategic, you know, there's always that kind of like, you know, play on, on meaning. And, um, actually I really should read some of her interviews early on because I do have a couple here but I haven't had time to read it but um but for me that was kind of the world that they navigated in that they couldn't really do um it can be really be overt about expressing boys love how they want it and that's why um there was this magazine June that kind of was the space for it but that didn't last long and it took yeah, Jine has been up and down. Before. It ran in like it was founded in like the sixties or the seventies, and it didn't last very long. And then it had late like a 70s. Re- yeah, late seventies. Um, and then it had like a it got reestablished and ran for a few years, and then like shut down again. Jine's mm. had a complicated That's... history. Um, yeah, even though it's like a very famous, um, like the first distinctly BL magazine that I can think of. I mean, and, it was um, um, it was before BL was like very had its commercial. own fully commercial identity as a genre, um, but yeah. it was like very um, very influenced and very rooted in that like um, homoerotic yeah. shoujo. And it's fact, I remember the first June issue was really about establishing who they were, and they were defining themselves as shonen. I, in fact, they were using the term tanbi. Um, to really highlight how they were focused on aesthetic, the beauty of aesthetic, and um, and how and that is both seen in the visuals of their comics, and that was that was um, Takemiya Keiko's love child, so to speak, June. You know, she's done the cover, she's done essays on it. They she she engages in discussions with fans, um, and then there's uh, and then yeah, there's that lapse. Um, it will come once in a while, but it, it's no long. It's becoming increasingly, as, especially um, when it was gone. The growth of Yaoi as a um, underground fan movement or underground fan concept uh, really grew 
No, and that became uh, that really transformed how people consumed um, the masculine body. How they also how fem- women, in particular, female fans, um, reimagine the masculine body. Let alone reimagine the characters that these ma- masculine bodies, you know, portray, and that they became like this. Um, they became like dolls that they could play with, you know, like you would like you would your Barbie doll and you would imagine them today. You always gave them that space um, because there's no rules to it. There's no meaning to it. Meaning suddenly, if you think that you're bound to the rules of of June with your suddenly there's no rules. What are you going to do? Well, some one artist would say, well, I want to put them in a fairy tale. OK, um, I want them to be lovers. OK, I want them to, you know, um, have long sexual pining and all of that jazz. Okay, you got it. You know, I'm gonna do that for like, and that's actually basically what Minami Ozaki did with her, um, with her Captain Tsubasa Dujinshi. It's all about this character Hyuga pining for the goalie of uh, his goalie Wakashimaya, and and it's like this long build up until they became world world class players. They became like World Cup athletes. And the, and it's who wouldn't love a good slow burn, you know? Um, they'll go on a holiday. Go ahead, you know. And and that's the playful at- atmosphere that the nineteen eighties and even into the nineteen nineties, where um, I think by the time Yoshinaga Fumi did her slam dunk to Jinshi, it was already the peak of that um, of that. Um, cultural movement so to speak or cultural consumption yeah i think um it's really interesting how we get that sort of progression um from like the very um sort of uh high-minded in some ways and like aesthetic works of um like the 60s and 70s um Uh into like the more um playful works of the 80s and 90s but that still like developed these really rigid um for the most part, um, like rules for BL, it's like you can do anything you want within the rules. Um, you yeah. know the the dynamic of semi and, and uke yeah, and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and in fact, of course, the whole <laughs> idea of the of the shipping started in Dojinshi. That um, well, well, not shipping as we know it, because again, this is running in parallel with what was happening in the United States, but. Um, and I'm I'm not exactly sure how strong is the influence of one over the other, but I'm certain that they're probably because of what they consume, it's quite independent of what was happening in the U.S. Um, but um, I think it was mid 1980s when there's this big fandom surrounding um, samurai troopers, which I don't think any of the listeners know, that they started using markers for who gets to be on top. They like to use hearts, they used to use slashes, X's, smiley faces, and then eventually when they moved to, and this is after Captain Tsubasa, when they moved to Saint Seiya and then later on Slam Dunk, these became rigidly clear. When you say Ruhana, you already know Rukawa is the top and Hanamichi of Slam Dunk is the bottom. And so they were actually building, and this is part of my thesis already, where they were already building their knowledge of how, what are the rules that will make our consumption of this really growing media a lot easier. And this is why when you go to places like Mandarake, these are heavily outlined. Like, 
if you go to this section, this is all just this particular pairing. And this particular, and even the way Comiket is designed, the way it's, um, if you look at the maps of Comiket, it's done by ships. You know, you won't find, you won't find a Hanaru in a Ruhana section, you know, because it's just easier to navigate for fans. Yeah. Uh, as an aside, very old American listeners may know uh, Samurai Troopers as Ronin Warriors, where it was released in a very interestingly edited English dub. Oh, um, but, oh I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that. I actually, you know, it's only this. So I've read this whole Samurai Trooper thing in a research, in a Japanese research. And so I'm like, what is this Samurai Trooper thing? So I tried looking for it, never found it. And I was trying to look for manga, but because it was an anime, couldn't find it. And I only actually managed to score a dojinshi this year. <laughs> huh. Yeah, like I, I'm, I'm in the hunt for like legacy dojinshi. Cheap, cheap oh. legacy dojinshi that people don't really want. And I'm fortunate I've only found um, a samurai trooper dojinshi this year. So I'm hoping to educate myself. I'll try to find um, Ronin Warriors. Ronin Warriors? Okay. Yeah, yeah, that was the uh, the Americanized title. Okay. So so I take it, if, if you're looking for obscure ones, you won't be getting the uh, Clamp Devil Man Egg Baby doujinshi. I think that one's quite famous. Um, no, 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 that's impossible. The cap, um, I've And here's the thing, I've also used, I've, I've, of course, I've got to include Clamp, right? They've done milestones for Saint Seiya. Um, I haven't found Saint Seiya Clamp doujinshi, but I've seen it in a number of anthologies and I've seen mm. it in um, how they engage in discourse with other fandoms um, and there's this one that I'm particularly looking for because it was very specific to Shonen Jump and um, and in fact it's interesting because it's already showcasing how they're consuming particular texts differently um, and this is the clamp in Wonderland issue with um, with them uh, again, the baby egg or whatever, um, where where Kakyuin gives birth to Jotaro's child, and um, and then and they it, just turned that into wish. Precisely, precisely, <laughs> wish is like the glorified fic of that. Uh, um, but yeah, that's um, that that is you know part of that fan, fan consumption and that fan movement, and it's quite interesting though because. Um, this I don't know if it's because Clamp is really big, but um, I've always been. I've I know that they've been quite intimate with fandom during their heyday, but it's fascinating how their works have never really reached some kind of fandom latency in the same way that other titles are hmm. for as shoujo artists. So, but that's just that's, I just found that fascinating. I mean, I certainly remember a lot of fan content for X. Yeah, but, 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 but I'm referring to doujinshi, like Japanese oh, right, comic right, doujinshi. Right, right. There's a lot of fan content on on, on the Anglophone fandom, but I'm actually quite surprised. That's why my surprise when I went there, and I'm like, maybe, oh, I maybe I should look for like X doujinshi and so on. There's hardly any, even and not much, huh? Yeah, not much. Yeah, huh, that is surprising. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, we're at about an hour. Uh, the last thing I want to ask you guys is if you were to send away the listeners with a either a, a classic manga to look for or a piece of criticism, if they want to read up more about what we've been talking about, what would you suggest? 
I would say that just picking up Boys Love Manga and Beyond is a great start. Um, I, I think, like, BL is, like, a very expansive genre. Um, so, like, it goes... There are threads and themes of it that can be seen before the year 49ers. Um, and then the genre, the commercial genre today is still, like, evolving um, and changing a lot. We're seeing more... Um, I think some interesting trends that we're seeing are like more gay protagonists, um, a little more flexibility with who tops and who bottoms with Seme and Uke. Um, not like a lot. It's still pretty. I think um, I think what authors are doing more is like playing with expectations. So you'll still have a Seme and an Uke, um, but the Uke might not be like as like evidently like feminine or, um, you know, submissive in the relationship or whatever I'm, I'm I'm like for example my new love and fascination are all of these um uh ojisan uke um titles that are being published left and right I'm like no stop stop this is <laughs> I can't prove that that's because t- of tiger and bunny but I suspect it's because of tiger and bunny um I don't think so because it has always been there it has mm. always been there and I think the I think what really sparked it in the last few months is um, this series called Ojisan Rabu, hmm. um, which is a television show. Apparently, it's on Netflix. It, I saw it on Netflix in Japan, but I haven't seen it here in the Philippines. So, and it's just an older, it, an older love interest. No, 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 it's um, Ojisan Rabu. Uh, sorry, Osan Rabu. That's the name of the television show. Osan Rabu is a um. An office, typical office um, love story between the boss and this particular, um, I don't know what. As I said, I haven't seen it. I've only seen bits of it and how popular it's been lately. Like in my recent trip in Osaka, there's like um, little light novels related to it and so on and so forth. So Hmm. um, I think it's available in Canada. Maybe Canadians can watch it. I'm not sure. But yeah. The the other thing that I would want to like give a quick shout out. I don't know if it's necessarily a recommendation, um, but I have a very soft spot in my heart for Loveless. Um, uh-huh. I think it's yeah. like she's also a Dojinshi artist, you know. That? Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, yeah you have yeah. that tons of like movement between the amateur and the professional. It's really cool. Yeah. Um, y- Yoon Koga is always interesting. Yeah, it, I can never take that away from her. I mean, I would definitely you know agree. Loveless is kind of a hot mess, um, it but is also it has mess. lesbians, um, and also it's like got it's like trying to say something, which I think is interesting. Um, I, yeah, I, I and, love. And if it like, ever ends, <laughs> yeah, we'll know if it actually you know, said it. Sure, would be nice to get no, to get a fine closure. I remember reading Loveless, and I'm like, what is this hot mess that I'm getting in? And I've had the fortune of reading her doujinshi, and, and I'm like, crap, her hot mess has always been there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I feel like with Loveless, she certainly is trying to say something about CSA survivors, but also she's kind of fetishizing her 12-year-old protagonist. Well, yeah, yeah, it straddles a very fine line. Um, um, yeah. I... Yeah, it's trying to say something about a lot of things, but it's it's always worth uh, criticizing its execution. <laughs> I do love it though, and I do think that it's like um, it, it's a really interesting work, if nothing else. 
Um, for an actual like recommendation, something that I think a lot of people would enjoy, um, it's pretty obvious, but I think like Scarlet Berico's um, uh, Jackass is really fun. <laughs> it, it's got uh, a really um, unique character. Um, uh, one of the like the side couple. Um, there's a high schooler who explicitly identifies as gay and is like like visibly queer in some ways like ear piercings like slightly gender non-conforming um he works in um (laughs) he has like a relationship with the culture um and it's not just like not just like gay bars it's like a whole network of people um like supporting each other living together uh it's very subtle it is a side relationship um but i just found that really interesting and really um remarkable it felt really refreshing uh and the main story is really fun and cute too (laughs) kirsten what about you um so there's bl manga and beyond it's definitely a read um in fact there's this interesting um special issue on um otw organization of of transformative works Uh, a very um, important organization a very um uh they have a journal um, and they did have, it's actually, um, it's uh, a special issue that runs parallel with Boys Love Manga and Beyond, and it's edited by um, some of the same editors, um, Suganuma and uh, Nagaike Sensei. Um, and that was like 2015. Oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so it's, it, yeah, 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 no, no, no. But it, they're, they're actually kind of like some of the articles that couldn't make it to Boys Love Manga and Beyond were actually there. So, um, and it's also an interesting perspective. Um, I know there was an earlier book um, that came out in um, the Western, in, in like, the U.S. Yeah. Um, um, that was the one by um, Pagliasotti. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, but it's more of a, um, a global understanding of BL. Yeah, so, yeah more uh, emphasis on like, um, on, like, fandom and, like, fan uh, dynamics rather than the, the uh, history of the genre. But, but yeah, um... Of that, of that uh, special issue, there's so it's called Transnational Boys Love Fan Study Special, and um, there's this really interesting article by Akiko Hori, okay, um, and Akiko Hori is one of the leading uh, boys love scholars in Japan, and um, she's done this particular this this done uh, she's done this particular article. Um, and there, actually, there's a lot of really interesting articles there. Um, but the one that I liked the most, or at least the one I would strongly recommend reading, especially within the space of online discourse on BL, is Akiko Hori's On the Response or Lack Thereof of Japanese Fans to Criticism that Yaoi is Anti-Gay Discrimination. Oh yeah, we didn't even get into the Yaoi one, so... Yeah, so, um, so... I feel like that is, it, it would do it, it would do that very important discussion a disservice to yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so minutes, there's so. her, and then, um, so, so I think that's, that's very important. She's actually published a book about this, um, in Japanese and, um, and especially in terms of understanding, um, sexuality and so on. So I think that's quite important, um, that, uh, it, this was in 2013, so it's been five years since it was published. Um, so I think fans should give it a shot. In. Okay, so I think that I was published concurrently with um, Pagliasati's book, rather than Boys Love Manga and Beyond. 
Um, but it it actually was kind of developed around the same time. Okay. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Because this is actually no. What I mean is this was actually done in um, uh, what you call this? Nagaiki Sensei and Suganuma Sensei were working alongside the people in Boys Love Manga and Beyond. Okay. Um, because they're also editors for that one, so that's why I said they kind of work together. One was just published earlier. Um, because Boys Love Manga and Beyond was really a res- was written in response to Pagliasotti, like because Pagliasotti was tackling the global issues, what was really happening in Japan. So this was really more a Japan focused, like let's really understand Boys Love as what it is when you know it was how it's conceived and perceived in Japan, and so and. And Boys Love Manga and Beyond is critical because it actually has a lot of important Eureka issues. And Eureka has been an interesting literary journal. Um, and they've been doing a lot of special issues on Boys Love. And so some of them are published there as well. And um, so that is on the academic side, at least the easy reading that doesn't involve reading Japanese. And then in terms of classics, um, I just checked now. Fantagraphics, so that means Rachel Thorne is behind this. Um, is uh, um, they're releasing Pono Ichizoku, late 2019 to early 2020, and Rachel Matt Thorne will translate the manga. So that I think is a very interesting um, series to read. It's less drama compared to Kazutoki no Uta, but it's fun and cheeky. It has very interesting characters and relationships and dynamics. So. Um, it's a about a family of vampires. I don't know. So it's it's like it's like I'm cool. I'm doing injustice by saying it's better than you know interview with a vampire or whatever. That whole uh... I'm, I'm I'm doing severe. <laughs> I, that's why I say I'm doing severe injustice. It's a lot better than that. Uh... But I guess yeah. So yeah. let's not. Let's just say it's a good it's a good story about okay. a family that I'm lives forever. <laughs> okay, it's about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So mm-hmm. um. Yeah, so that that's for the classic one. For more contemporary ones, and I think, um, and this involves a bit of reflection. Um, I think Sarah mentioned earlier how you know to a certain extent, boys love has rules, but recently there are artists who are now challenging and are kind of questioning and interrogating those rules and what are the boundaries you know, of boys love. And I think if there's an author out there who's doing that, that would be none other than Harada. It's not everybody's cup of tea, and I'm not saying you should like that cup of tea. In fact, what's fascinating about her is she's designing to ensure that you don't like the cup of tea. Yeah. <laughs> um, that, you know, it's it's something that it, she's she's been writing really um, intellectual... I mean, there, she's, she's had cheeky fun. She had, like, she has a Sundere office one, um, which is actually one of my more light-hearted favorites from her. But um, the ones that are released in English, like Yatamomo, is an interesting question about eroticism and hard sexuality or hard eroticism in um, boys love manga. And um, like, how do we push? Why should we go this far? And at what point is this still pleasurable to us? If you get bonking every issue and it's not just intense bonking how then is this still within your definition of erotica or is this something really an exploration of boys love as pornography harada harada has more questionable titles that are not available in english and i'm happy that it's not available in english simply because i think 
the odd not that i'm saying that um english reading audiences are um immature but that i also don't want her to be caught in a crossfire for an audience that is not necessarily familiar with the genre because some of her works dialogue with the genre that is very embedded currently really embedded in japan and um having it taken out of context having you know i mean we can appreciate motohagyu now because for the past 15 20 years you have the likes of Rachel Mathorn and all of these scholars bringing in and talking about how fantastic her works are. But imagine imagine bringing these works in without context. But yeah, that's 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 the thing that you know, it has to be taken in context. And I think Harada right now there are some things that we can still appreciate individually, but some of her more pressing and poignant works like the ones that she um from Hen Ai which is her one-shot series um and that's really her exploration of like if we if we started questioning boys love as odd or weird or perverse this is how it will look you know and it's in a dialogue with what do we define as perverse in boys love then that is a very interesting start to the title because it's it's unsettling and there are other unsettling titles but it's yeah so Harada is one um, for cheeky fun, and it's representative of um, uh, not really yaoi, but rather you know one of the interesting outcomes or outputs in yaoi. Uh, I'll 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 plug my favorite um, Yoshinagafumi title of that genre, and that would be um, Ichigenme. Um, Ichigenme is a mo it's more representative of her work. Uh, of her yaoi work and um um it's cheeky it's fun it's also very sexy and there cool um i guess i'll just throw on at the end there um i i uh, am a fan of bl uh, I, since since we've had uh, two suggested works here that are, are very positive um and you know, BL does deserve as a genre to be celebrated for for what it's done, especially for for women creatives. Uh, I would also suggest listeners maybe seek out some Gengoro Tagame uh, beyond you know my brother's husband, because he is super not a fan of BL as a genre, and he's a very prominent, influential uh, gay komi writer. Ah. So, can I just also plug something? Yeah, um, with regards to Gengoro Tagame. Um, so I did a podcast with a colleague of mine who's done research on Gengoro Tagame's discourse on gay manga and so on. And um it's on my it's on it's on Otaku Champlu. And actually Gengoro Tagame is quite appreciative of the genre of boys love. And we are now and and in fact it's interesting because um this colleague of mine, Thomas Badinet, he researches on um gay consumption of boys love as well. And that we talk about the discourse of of, of gay consumption of gay manga, boys, um, boys love comics. Is there a difference? Um, do they really hate it, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. And Gengoro Tagame comes into the discussion as well. So I strongly suggest it's a two-part show because <laughs> we talk a lot. Um, but it's a two-part show, and so I hope if you want to also hear um, something about that, then absolutely, yeah. I think it is important. I, I don't. You know, I come here not to bury BL, but to say that we should definitely also be keeping up with the conversation about how the people depicted are feeling about it as we go. Um, and for Manga Rex, um, 
I'm I'm always pulling for a license rescue on From Eroica with Love, which I adore. And um <sighs> and that's such a beautiful title. <laughs> well, before the before she took a hiatus anyway, the post hiatus stuff is not good. But those first fifteen volumes, boy, they're joy. Um It's still ongoing, for, if I'm not mistaken. I think it's allegedly over as of twenty twelve. Or at least oh, okay. she she hasn't posted another one of the semi-updating chapters since then. Oh, okay. I don't think it ever actually properly ended, sadly. But but it's a lot of fun, you know, it's a, it's a spy caper. Um, Dorian has a harem of beautiful men and and a, you know, very Sundere, deeply repressed love interest. And they have crimes all over Cold War Europe. It's great. Uh, modern stuff, I am a really big fan of Yosh- um well I mentioned it before so I, I might as well plug uh what did you eat yesterday which is interesting in that it has that it's trying to be a depiction of a grounded middle-aged couple going through like you know day-to-day realities of living as a gay couple in Japan I feel like it's already um having started since 2010 aged poorly in some respects with how quickly um things have evolved over the past decade but it has a really good heart and it 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 excels at really quiet tender moments that i like a lot and also it's a cooking manga which is fun mm-hmm. amen truth all right well thank you guys so much for joining us yeah thanks we'll have to have you guys back sometime talk about stuff a, a little more recent maybe that would be very fun. Uh, listeners, if you liked this episode, we also have another BL podcast where we, sp- uh, where I spoke with Masaki C. Matsumoto and Devin Randall, a.k.a. the uh, Queer Fudanchi. Uh, if you can also find other episodes of our podcast on SoundCloud. Uh, and if you really liked this episode, you can head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash animefeminist. Even a dollar a month helps this content to happen on the website and in your earbuds. You can find more works from contributors on our site at animefeminist.com. You can find us on social media on Facebook at AnimeFem, on Tumblr at AnimeFeminist, and on Twitter at AnimeFeminist. Thank you so much for joining us. And you know what? Go out and pick out a BL manga tomorrow. Try it out. <laughs>